Well, that was indeed an interesting introduction. Uh, good evening, students and guests. Uh, now that you've heard what some people think I said, I will be glad to let you know what I'm really going to say. Uh, coming here to visit with you at Harvard tonight is a little bit of nostalgia for me. Uh, it was exactly 40 years ago that I came as a student to Radcliffe. I was in the first class where women were not required to wear hats when they walked across the Harvard Yard. That was a great break from previous uh, tradition. However, uh, the Harvard Graduate School was fully co-ed at that time, and I was in class and competed with all the men, and my diploma was signed by the Harvard president. But that was indeed a long time ago. I am very glad that uh, Harvard, the Harvard Law School, from which my husband graduated a number of years ago, is a place that respects uh, tolerance and academic inquiry. I came to talk about a constitutional issue that has, has been debated very vigorously in this country for 12 years. It has had more than 100 votes in various legislatures or by the people on referendum. And yet there has not been a critical treatment of this constitutional issue in any important law journal uh, anywhere except the Phyllis Schlafly report since the article written by Professor Paul Freund in the Harvard Civil Liberties Civil Rights Law Review in 1971. It is positively amazing that in all those years of debate and discussion and votes in so many states uh, that it was not addressed critically in uh, the other journals uh, which bring these uh, matters to the attention of scholars, law students, and the public. It is unlikely that there has ever been any issue in modern times where one side was so completely frozen out in the scholarly journals in the news media and in the press. And uh, yet this has been despite the fact that this issue of the Equal Rights Amendment is an issue of fantastic effect and significance uh, in the distribution of power in our country, in the military, in the marital context, in state and federal relations. Uh, we wonder why it has been uh, not discussed on the issues in so many uh, areas where it, uh, I think, should have been. So let's start off with a brief history of the subject. The Equal Rights Amendment was first introduced into Congress in 1923. It was born in the era of the Women's Suffrage Amendment. I'll recite it for you in case you don't know it by heart. It says, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. Section 2 says Congress will have the power to enforce by appropriate legislation the provisions of this article, and Section 3 has it go into effect uh, within two years. Um, during the next um, approximately 45 years, all those Congresses had the good judgment to leave this amendment decently buried in the bottom drawer. Uh, during the time when uh, it uh, emerged a little bit, it had attached to it an amendment known as the Hayden Clause, uh, which said nothing in this amendment will be construed to deprive women of any of the rights, benefits, or protections they now possess. But in 1971, a group of women went down to Washington, a few dozen women, 
and they lobbied up and down the halls of Congress, and they convinced the congressmen that now was the time the American people wanted the Equal Rights Amendment. And so Congress voted it out by overwhelming majorities. Only 23 voted against it in the House, only nine voted against it in the Senate. When it came out of the House committee, it had attached to it something called the Wiggins Clause, which exempted the effect of ERA on the draft and women in combat. But that was taken out on the floor by the ERA advocates who wanted no exceptions and who did want women drafted and put into military combat. So they removed that clause. Uh, when it went over to the Senate, nine amendments were proposed to exempt uh, various effects of ERA. The amendments were all defeated, and ERA was voted out in its strict, absolute language. There followed a tremendous rush for ratification, uh, accompanied by all kinds of uh, uh, strange maneuverings. Uh, for example, the Delaware legislature in one house passed ERA even before it was passed by the U.S. Senate. Uh, Hawaii passed it within hours. Uh, Alaska passed it only in Section 1. Apparently, they must have done it by phone. They didn't hear about Sections 2 and 3. Um, some states passed it within 10 minutes. It was passed very much like in a body like this. Somebody were to stand up and say, let's all give three cheers for the ladies. Everybody but a clod would vote rah, rah, rah. And that's the way it went through the original legislatures. Within 12 months of the date that it came out of Congress, on March 22, 1972, it had passed 30 of the 38 legislatures that are needed for ratification. In the succeeding um, four or five years, they got five more states, but five other states rescinded their previous action. Now, the original uh, ERA, when it came out of Congress, had a preamble to it, that gave it a seven-year time limit. It said ERA would become part of the Constitution if ratified by 38 state legislatures within seven years. And as they saw the end of the seven years coming, they knew they weren't going to get the 38 states, and so they went back to Congress and got Congress to vote them an unprecedented extension. Uh, which, of course, was changing the terms of the original amendment, but nevertheless, they passed it and uh, passed the extension by a simple majority instead of by the two-thirds uh, requirement for constitutional amendments, and they got their additional three years. The three years gave them until June 30, 1982. The ERA advocates devoted those last three years to hammering away at the states where they thought they had the best chance to pass. In Illinois, the state legislature voted on ERA every year for 10 years. The Florida legislature voted on it about nine years. States like North Carolina and Oklahoma voted on it at least six different years. Illinois, in the spring of 1982, became a sort of a three-ring circus as they attempted to push it through the legislature. On the first floor, we had the hunger strikers, uh, one in a wheelchair, some occasionally being carried in on a stretcher, as they were hoping by this hunger strike uh, to intimidate legislators into voting for ERA. On the second floor, uh, no, it was on the third floor, they had the chain gang who chained themselves sometimes to the door of the governor's office and sometimes to the door of the, of the uh, Senate 
at times they would come in and lie down in front of the rostrum of the speaker, hoping that that would prevail upon legislators to vote yes. Uh, then on one day they came in with uh, plastic sacks of blood that they had gotten from the, from the uh, 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 butcher place, and uh, they were, it was pig's blood, and they wrote with it all over the marble floors, especially the names of the legislators they hated the most. Maybe some of them are here tonight, I don't know. And uh, then, of course, this was also the state where one of the advocates offered a legislator a $1,000 bribe to switch his vote from no to yes. Uh, she was ultimately uh, convicted, and the conviction was upheld on appeal. Uh, well, they didn't get it, and it died on uh, June 30th, 1982. And uh, it appeared to uh, rise again from the ashes after that. It was introduced again into the U.S. House with great fanfare, in uh, January of 1983, Speaker Tip O'Neill gave it his full support uh, with the number H.J. Uh, Res. 1. And we were again told uh, by all the press it was going to pass. Uh, Speaker O'Neill brought it up on the 15th of November last, and it failed. Um, probably no issue has ever had so much power going behind it. Uh, they certainly had the full support of the President of the United States during the Ford and Carter administrations. Under Jimmy Carter, they ran their campaign right out of the White House. They had most of the governors. I think it's fair to say they had 99% of the media in this country. But they couldn't sell it. And during this period of time, uh, ERA was put on referendum uh, quite a number of times. It was nearly always defeated, and defeated rather massively, as it was even in the state of New York, where it was defeated by 420,000 votes. In the last six months of the ERA campaign in 1982, uh, the advocates raised a great deal of money, and they were spending a million dollars a month on television uh, targeted in the states where they hoped it would do the most good. But they didn't have a product to sell. Uh, it is very difficult to sell something as an advantage for women uh, when the first and most immediate effect is that 18-year-old women would have to register for the military draft. Uh, I don't think if you spend a million dollars a day on advertising, you can sell that product. Uh, but at any rate, um, they spent their money and um, they did not win. Um, the product that they were trying to sell, uh, they were always unable to show that it will do any good whatsoever for women. It is clear that it has nothing to do with the employment picture because our employment laws are already sex neutral. Uh, the only way that ERA would do anything in the employment law is to wipe out Dothard versus Rawlinson, which is the uh, case that upheld the uh, BFOQ, the bona fide occupational qualification, uh, which kept a small woman from getting a job as a guard in an Alabama maximum security prison. It incidentally doesn't keep women from getting jobs as guards in other uh, maximum security prisons, apparently only Alabama, which the court described as having a uh, jungle uh, atmosphere. Uh, but that's, a, that's the only way that anybody can show that ERA will do anything in the field of employment because the employment laws, the Equal Pay Act, uh, the Title VII, the Equal Employment Opportunity Act are already sex neutral and in conformity uh, to the ERA mandate. 
these laws prohibit sex discrimination in hiring, in pay, and in promotions. And uh, they have a whole enforcement mechanism called the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. EEOC has won uh, enormous cases and made big companies pay millions of dollars in back pay settlements, uh, such as the $30 million they wrung out of AT&T, another $30 million out of U.S. Steel, and so forth. So all those laws are on the books, and ERA does not add anything to them. Now, the issue of the draft and the military combat was always a very core issue in this matter of ERA, because that is the one area where you meet a matter of total compulsion. Uh, a lot of other things, if you don't like the effect, you have a way to escape one way or the other. But when it comes to the matter of the military draft, if you get your greetings from the president and you don't show up, you're liable to have the federal marshals come around and arrest you and prosecute you for disobeying the law. And um, so um, this is also an issue in which there was never any dispute about what the effect of ERA would be. Um, all of the advocates over all these years have always admitted quite readily that yes, women would be drafted equally with men. Yes, uh, ERA would require the draft registration of women. Yes, e women would be put in combat like men. Yes, the Equal Rights Amendment would uh, make unconstitutional the male-only draft law and the law that excludes women from military combat. And uh, so uh, by 1980, uh, when the ERAers realized they were again running out of time and they weren't getting any more states, they apparently adopted the strategy that if they could just hurry up and draft women now, they would take away from us our best argument. So they sold Rosalind Carter the idea and she sold Jimmy Carter the idea, who then, who then proposed in his State of the Union message in 1980 the equal draft registration of men and women. That was in his State of the Union message in 1980. Well, uh, even uh, his Democratic leadership in Congress could not go along with that. Uh, this idea was overwhelmingly defeated in both, in both houses of Congress. Uh, but the uh, advocates of ERA were not dissuaded. They participated in the lawsuit that found its way up to the Supreme Court under the name of Roster versus Goldberg. Uh, the National Organization for Women was among those who filed a brief in that case, claiming that the exemption of women from the draft made women second-class citizens, and that service in the military would be a politically maturing experience for women. And so they pleaded with the court to order the immediate draft registration of women just like men. Uh, they lost in June of 1981 uh, when the Supreme Court uh, upheld the Sex Discriminatory Male Draft Registration Act, and uh, it is clear that uh, this is, uh, would be overturned by ERA. All of the uh, advocates of ERA have always admitted the effect in this area. The effect in the area of abortion is um, another very interesting area. Uh, and in particular, the effect on abortion funding. Uh, many of us had realized and talked about this effect since the very beginning of the debate in 1972. But rather uniformly, the advocates of the Equal Rights Amendment tried to deny that there was any connection between ERA and abortion. Uh, 
When the Supreme Court upheld the Hyde Amendment in Harris v. McRae in 1980, some of them changed their tune. Harris v. McRae was the case that upheld the Hyde Amendment, which bars the spending of federal taxpayer funds to pay for abortions. Harris v. McRae was upheld by five to four. And uh, in response to that, there apparently were some of the ERAers and the abortionists who thought, well, now is the time uh, to go for abortion funding under the state ERAs. Uh, so the American Civil Liberties Union filed a brief in lawsuits in three states, Massachusetts, uh, Hawaii, and Pennsylvania, making the argument that the state equal rights amendment in those states required the spending of state tax funds for abortions because they wanted to get the abortions paid for with taxpayers' money. Now, how could they possibly argue that when obviously ERA doesn't mention abortion? Uh, here is their legal argument. Their argument is really very simple. It is that abortion is a medical procedure that is performed only on women. Therefore, if you deny tax funds for a medical procedure performed only on women, you have discriminated on account of sex within the meaning of the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, it was not clear for a while what the court was going to decide, uh, but just a few weeks ago, the uh, state court in Pennsylvania did buy that argument under the state uh, Pennsylvania Equal Rights Amendment. And so this has established the connection between ERA and abortion funding uh, beyond the shadow of a doubt. Uh, there's a lot of other corroboratory uh, evidence, such as the opinion of the Supreme Court in the Newport News shipbuilding case last year, in which the court said that it is now clear that discrimination on account of pregnancy uh, is by definition discrimination on account of sex. So it's, it's obvious this is the opinion of a large number of people and that that would be a major effect of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, unfortunately, for the sake of the ERA advocates, there is a clear, easy majority in Congress uh, in favor of the Hyde Amendment and against taxpayer funding of abortions. Um, so um, that is what has uh, created the stalemate at the present time. Next, we take up the connection between ERA and gay rights. Now, this connection was largely admitted by most of the lawyers speaking on this subject during the early years. Uh, for example, back in 1970, uh, noted feminist lawyer Rita Hauser gave a major speech to the American Bar Association in which she said that ERA would require us granting marriage licenses to homosexuals. In 1973, um, excuse the term, the Yale Law Journal published a review article in which it took the same position that the Equal Rights Amendment would require the granting of marriage licenses to homosexuals. Uh, in 1972, Professor Paul Freund had testified before Senate committee, if the law must be as undiscriminating in regard to sex as race, uh, the laws outlaw outlawing same-sex marriages will become as invalid as the laws forbidding miscegenation. Uh, the, uh, Barbara Back Babcock, who was the author of one of the major textbooks on sex discrimination used in law schools, uh, said in her book published in 1975 that it is not clear what the effect of ERA would be in the homosexual area, 
but it was clear from the way she wrote it that she tilted toward assuming that ERA would implement uh, the gay rights agenda. Then you have the connection between ERA and veterans. And again, this is an area that uh, I've been talking about for many years, but was, was pretty much ignored in a good bit of the debate. Uh, we knew that the um, feminists were very much against veterans' preference because they brought the case uh, in uh, the Massachusetts versus Feeney case uh, up to the Supreme Court uh, in an attempt to outlaw veterans' preference. But last year, in the testimony before the House Judiciary Committee, the president of the League of Women Voters, who is a leading advocate of ERA, said flat out that ERA would overturn Massachusetts versus Feeney and make unconstitutional the veterans' uh, preference laws. Again, their argument is very similar to their legal theory about abortion. Uh, anybody knows that female veterans get the same preference as male veterans, but that isn't their version of equality. Their argument is that since 98% of veterans are male, it is sex discriminatory within the meaning of the Equal Rights Amendment to have veterans' preference because that discriminates against non-veteran females. Uh, of course, under the present Constitution, they didn't win, uh, but under ERA, it would be a different story. Then comes the matter of what does the ERA do to schools? That is a very large area. As I'm sure you know, um, Title IX forbids uh, discrimination in schools and colleges that get federal aid. Uh, however, there are a lot of exceptions in Title IX. Uh, they accepted all the single-sex schools and colleges. Uh, there are about 100 all-female colleges, a few all-male colleges, and probably thousands of single-sex elementary and secondary schools. Title IX also exempts such, such things as fraternities, sororities, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, YMCA, YWCA, and so forth. It's pretty clear that under ERA, uh, a constitutional rule which had no exceptions would wipe out all the exceptions in Title IX. I don't think anybody could dispute that. Uh, under Runyon versus McCrary, I think it's pretty clear that the mandate to abolish sex discrimination in elementary and secondary schools would apply even where no federal aid was involved because there was no aid question involved in the Runyon case. And then uh, last year came along the case called uh, Bob Jones University uh, versus United States, and that has opened up a whole new can of worms in connection with ERA. What this does is to put in jeopardy of losing its income tax exemption every school that is operated by a church or synagogue which does not ordain women or which uh, treats men and women differently. Again, it's clear there are a lot of people who want to do this. Now, uh, what, what the ruling was in the Bob Jones case was that uh, we have a national mandate against race discrimination. Therefore, any school that has any regulation whatsoever that is in uh, violation or contradiction to the mandate against race discrimination uh, can have its tax exemption removed by internal revenue. The regulation, incidentally, in the Bob Jones uh, case was a regulation about dating. But in any event, I'm not uh, disputing or criticizing the Bob Jones decision. 
I'm asking you to consider the application of the Bob Jones rule under ERA. If ERA means anything in this world, it would mean a national mandate against sex discrimination. I have heard uh, many presidents of the American Bar Associations testify that the legal impact of ERA would be to apply the same rule to sex that we now apply to race. So when you apply the Bob Jones ruling under ERA, you come up with the loss of tax exemption for all of the thousands of Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish schools in this country that are operated by parent religious bodies that do not ordain women or which make a difference of treatment uh, on account of sex. Now, uh, you may say that's a First Amendment problem, but Bob Jones University tried to invoke the First Amendment and they didn't get to first base with it. So I'm not saying that the churches will lose the tax exemption. Uh, I'm saying that the schools that are operated by the churches would lose their tax exemption. Then you have the question, another terribly interesting question under ERA, which is the matter of insurance. And in fact, unisex insurance has been one of the most interesting issues in the current Congress in Washington. Again, the ERA advocates uh, formulated their game plan. Uh, they conjured up this uh, idea of a conspiracy of insurance companies standing in the way of passage of ERA, and they thought if they could just make insurance unisex first, then they would get ERA on a grease platter. So they proposed a bill to enforce unisex insurance, which I'm sure you see would have the same effect as ERA, which has no exceptions. Now, the funny thing about the notion of unisex insurance is that it would do nothing but cost women hundreds of dollars a year in additional automobile accident insurance premiums every year for which they wouldn't get a dime's worth of additional coverage. In addition, they would, it would cost women uh, a great deal more in terms of life insurance. Women pay less life insurance because they live longer. Women pay less automobile accident insurance because they're better drivers and they don't have as many accidents. The, the actuarial information on this is absolutely overwhelming. Nobody could possibly deny it. And uh, so uh, women would have to pay in some areas as much as $900 a year more for automobile coverage than they pay now uh, just for the joy of knowing that at last they were equal to men. Well, this again was a pretty hard thing to sell and uh, they didn't make it. Um, there are a number of other issues in the ERA which uh, I won't go on any further because these are the main ones. Uh, uh, certainly a major one would be the effect of uh, Section 2 as interpreted under Katzenbach versus Morgan. But when the chief Senate sponsor of ERA was asked in the Judiciary Committee last year about a lot of these problems, uh, that was Senator Songus, his answer was, we're going to leave it all to the courts. Now, that may be an acceptable answer for some people, uh, but for the majority of the American people, that was not an acceptable answer. On November the 9th, the House Judiciary Committee had its meeting at which they were going to vote out ERA. It was the, one of the most interesting days I ever spent. It lasted all day, from 9 in the morning till about 4.30 in the afternoon. The various congressmen proposed amendments to prevent ERA from having all the effects that I've outlined here today. There were nine amendments proposed. Every one of them was defeated 
but it was clear that the sponsors of ERA could not answer or dispute the effect or the possible effect. Their only answer was, just trust the courts. And uh, so all the amendments failed. Uh, however, they all got at least 12 votes. It's well known in Washington that the Judiciary Committee is so liberal that anything that gets a dozen votes there will pass on the House floor. So going out of that committee meeting that afternoon, Patricia Schroeder and Don Edwards ran to Tip O'Neill and said, no way can we allow these amendments to be proposed on the House floor. And that is why Speaker O'Neill brought up ERA under suspension of the rules, which forbade the offering of any amendments. This was completely unprecedented. No constitutional amendment in history has ever been brought up under suspension of the rules, except one which was totally non-controversial. And uh, it failed, and it will always fail, because uh, it is an insult to the constitutional process to tell us that we cannot address these sensitive, powerful issues which are important to people and for which the ERA advocates have not been able to provide any answer. The Equal Rights Amendment has a past, but it doesn't have any future. And those casebooks of yours which prematurely included it will have to take it out in the next edition. Thank you. Okay, we have a good chunk of time for some questions. As I mentioned before, we have the microphones on the floor, and I just ask that you make your questions concise. Thank you. Why don't we start over here? Mrs. Schlafly, you've expressed some concern that uh, if the ERA were passed, life might be made easier for homosexuals and lesbians. And I'm wondering if you might explain to us why you think it's wrong to be homosexual or a lesbian. Uh, I don't even think that's relevant to the discussion. Uh, you, we all have free will. You can make your choice. The question is, are we going to put a constitutional amendment uh, which will mandate something in the Constitution which the homosexuals have been unable to get Congress or the state legislatures or the city councils to pass, and furthermore to do it surreptitiously while half the people are denying this effect? And I address myself to the issue of what ERA will or might do and whether we're willing to take that risk. And I think most of the issues involved uh, with the homosexuals are legislative issues, uh, which should not be left up to the imagination of the Supreme Court at some future time without our having the slightest idea what they're going to do. My question is why you think it's wrong to be homosexual or lesbian. Are you willing to answer that question? No, I don't think that's relevant to the discussion. You have free will to make your choice. If you want to choose that, that's between you and God. Well, God told me when she was talking to me that it was all right. But... Um... <laughs> Uh, for those of you not clapping, maybe you're beginning to understand why we won and will always win. Go ahead. Well, I don't really even want to address that. I was wondering if you could address uh, 
the issue, a similar issue, actually uh, the same issue, which you talked about in one of your monthly uh, reports in which you uh, talked about a homosexual disease. And, and I was wondering, um, actually some friends have thought of this, uh, what's your feelings if you oppose um, any gay rights because of AIDS as you, as you connect them? Um, what's your feelings are uh, for rights uh, for lesbians who uh, have no incidence of, of AIDS? Um, and so if you could address some, some of the issues. I don't know if you've read the Ellen on a good Well, my feelings toward him, I feel sorry for him. What do you feel about him? I feel sorry for him. I, I don't think that's a legal issue, what, how I feel about uh, their disease. Well, how, or, no, I was, that's not really the answer or an answer, I, I would say. I was wondering how you think that translates into legislation how you think that translates into equal rights on the legislation for gay people or for women. Um, is feeling sorry for them, feel, dealing with them equally, uh, does that translate into uh, discrimination in your mind? Well, I, I don't think we have laws about how people feel and whether they feel sorry or whether they don't feel sorry. I, you're getting into an area of what's going on in people's minds. I don't think that's relevant to the discussion. Uh, the, the Equal Rights Amendment the Equal Rights Amendment uses the word sex. It does not use the word women. It uses the word sex. The Equal Rights Amendment does not define the word sex. Sex has a great many different meanings. Many uh, feminist and liberal and ERA advocates have said that ERA will require us to grant marriage licenses to homosexuals or give other uh, so-called rights to homosexuals that they do not have now, such as rights that uh, belong to husbands and wives. Now, uh, this is a valid issue in regard to ERA. Will ERA have this effect? And uh, it is perfectly clear that with the uh, political power of the homosexuals, they have tried very hard to get assorted gay rights bills passed at the congressional level, at the state legislative level, and at city council. Uh, so far as I know, there's only one state uh, where they got it passed. Uh, they've been, they've got, gotten it passed in a few cities. Uh, but most of the time they have been unsuccessful. Uh, my objection is that they come in with a constitutional amendment masquerading under the name women's rights in an attempt to implement their whole agenda at the constitutional level. And meanwhile, half the people are even denying that that is going to be the effect. Let's take the next question. Uh, Ms. Schlafly, I, I hope you consider my question germane enough to the discussion to be gracious enough to answer it. Um, since we're talking Bob Jones and women's rights, um, I'd like to know what you have against seeing women ordained as priests. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't whether I have anything against women ordained as priests. I think that is a matter for each church body to decide. Some churches do ordain women and some don't. And I think it would be intolerable for the government to have any opinion about whether they should ordain women. Uh, and I... And... To withdraw the tax exemption of the thousands of Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish schools uh, that are operated by churches that orda don't ordain women on the ground that not ordaining women is some type of violation of a public mandate against sex discrimination, I think would be wrong. Ms. Shafi, I'm not asking a constitutional question. I'm asking what you have against, if anything, seeing women as priests. Well, I... If, 
uh, my church does not ordain women, and I support my church, but if your church ordains women, that is perfectly all right with me. I am not expressing my views about anybody else's church. I support my church that does not ordain women, and that's the way that my church is, and I support it. Um, Mrs. Slafly, I think you've given a very interesting argument tonight uh, about the ERA, and you've sort of listed a parade of horribles of what could happen if the ERA were passed. Now, my question is, isn't it true that if we were to think about any of the other, say, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, we could list an equally um, outrageous to certain people parade of horribles of perhaps what consequences the First Amendment might have that, in fact, uh, various people with whom we might not agree would be allowed to speak. Uh, and, and very many people perhaps wouldn't have voted for the first ten amendments if it had been put that way. Uh, don't you think that perhaps you have put it that way here and that actually we're talking about a basic right and that with any right um, there are certain considerations of who might agree with just what uses of it there are. But I can't see how that would actually affect the value to each of us as individuals to the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, the Third Amendment, or the ERA. Uh, there are some people who like to say that they don't think the Bill of Rights would pass today. I don't happen to subscribe to that view. Uh, I support the Bill of Rights. Uh, I don't think we... <laughs> I, in fact, I'd, I'd, I'd have to. It's been a hard time getting my freedom of speech in a lot of areas. But uh, um, the, I, uh, I don't think anybody showed... Um, a par I don't think we've had a parade of... Uh, of horribles under the Bill of Rights that could possibly compare to the parade of horribles that um, I've uh, spelled out under ERA. No way did was there uh, a discussion that ERA, that the First Amendment would have all these bad effects and then it rejected. In other words, the legislative history of ERA is tremendous that the advocates of ERA really want ERA to do what these things are. Now, maybe 100% of them don't want them to do it, but it's, take the matter of drafting, of drafting women. The, the legislative record is absolutely overwhelming that the advocates of ERA do mean for ERA to have this effect. It's overwhelming that that's what they mean. Now, uh, if you want to ridicule my feeling about that as a parade of horribles, it's certainly a valid horrible. We don't want it to have, have it happen. I don't see any way the court could weasel out of that. Um, I, I, I don't think it's comparable to any, anything you can say about the First Amendment. Well, I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I want to exercise my prerogative as introducer and make a comment on, mm -hmm. this, on this issue. Um, on the draft. I could comment on a lot of things, but on the mm -hmm. draft. If there were an enemy at our shore, and there were a need for national mobilization to repel the enemy, my hunch is that you and I could do as well as most men. <laughs> and I find it insulting that, um, you know, that our concept of equality says that you and I are less qualified than any man, that any man is better qualified than the best qualified woman to defend our country. Uh, the combat issue, combat has in the modern army
for anyone that has to confront that, but it's a response, you know, it's a responsibility of citizenship to either participate or to fight in citizenship for women as well as men. I won't do this again. Okay. Well, it, it, it's pretty funny. Hardly anyone, women want to be plumbers in civilian life. It's uh, very difficult to see why they'd want to be plumbers in military life. But in it, well, how, what percentage of plumbers are women? Do you know? <laughs> it's a pretty... <laughs> I invite you to look it up. Uh, but, but in any event, uh, what we've done is to have a subjective statement of... Uh, of Professor Law's definition of responsibility of citizenship and her subjective statement about her definition of equality. And uh, with all due respect, nobody appointed you to define those terms. And the, re the rest of us don't accept those definitions of responsibility of citizenship uh, or of equality. This country fought nine wars, including a very a tremendous war on two fronts, and it was never necessary to draft women, and the American people don't want women drafted. But uh, under, the present, under the present Constitution, if the American people want it, Congress could do it any time. They could do it tomorrow. I can tell you they won't, because Congress has to stand for election every two years, and they know the American people won't put up with drafting women. They never have, and they never will. Now, I agree that if the enemy were in our homeland, that most of the women in this room, like Scarlett O'Hara, would be able to come down the steps and shoot the enemy. But that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about drafting women, sending them through basic training, sending, teaching them to kill, and sending them out to fight the enemy. And the American people are not going to put up with it. And the more the advocates talk about how they want to do this to us, uh, the more they're sinking ERA deeper under the ground. Yeah. Uh, I think oh, this side. Okay. Yes. Um, an issue I see as part of ERA is sexual harassment. And I wanted to question you on a statement you made in 1981 before a congressional committee. You said that virtuous women are not sexually harassed. Um, I want to know where you got your statistics from. And <laughs> in the federal workplace, 42% of all women reported being sexually harassed. Well, in the first place, you didn't quote the whole sentence. Uh, the rest of the sentence was, uh, except in uh, occasional circumstances, something like that. And as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, the same day that I testified, uh, there was testimony that there were only, I think, 119 complaints of sexual harassment nationwide, which, of course, is a tiny percentage of the workforce. Um, may I make a point about that? Uh, just a minute. Let me, let me finish. The uh, the notion, of course, you realize we're not talking about crime. And that was made clear in my statement. This has nothing to do with crime. You must understand that. And I made that very clear in my statement. It has nothing to do with crime. What we are talking about is the give and take that goes on in the office and in the factory. That's what we're talking about, in the workplace. You don't consider that, you don't consider that crime? Well, if a guy makes a pass at you at the office, that is not a crime. No, that is not a crime. If he uses it against you, it is against the law. No remedies for that. And I think that should be dealt with. That's perfectly true. But, are the, oh. but the point is, most women, I mean, don't you learn in high school how to tell a, tell a guy no? I mean, that's when you ought to learn how to tell a guy no. Why do we have to learn how to tell a guy no? 
Why do you have to learn how to tell a guy no? Why? Well, if you want to know how to tell him no, maybe that's your problem. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't phrase that correctly. I would like to rephrase that. Look, here's the answer to the question. I'm talking about All right, here's the answer to the question. Sure, there are people, sure, there are bad guys who are taking advantage of women, and I don't know if there are any more bad guys who are taking advantage of women than there are bad women who are taking advantage of men. I haven't taken anything like that. But at any rate, I'm sure it goes on. Uh, but the question is, uh, then, how are you going to police it? Do you want a federal policeman at every water cooler watching what's going on in the office? I mean, there's just some things you have to cope with yourself. And that's, that's basically the answer, unless it's uh, some outlandish... Uh, uh, cases was mentioned over here. Well, you've got a claim, and women have collected damages, and I'm all for that. May I point out something, though? Uh -huh. When you quote percentages and complaint, number of complaints, you're also assuming that the woman, when she's making a complaint, is basically fa facing hosti hostility, because there's not really a support for her of an official that, that is one of the problems. And the problem is, and when I, you, I you make a complaint, it becomes your word against his. Yes. I believe the instance is much higher than is reported. Well, are you going to have a system where he's guilty until he proves himself innocent? I mean, if, if it's your word against his, how are you going to resolve that? You have enormous problems I think with this. And 99% of them are taken care of in the same way that high school girls ought to learn to deal with passes in high school. Over here. Uh, yes, I was hoping we might be able to drift just for a moment from the ERA. Uh, it was mentioned during your introduction that uh, you uh, are opposed to the left wing of the uh, Republican Party. And we've heard a great deal tonight about uh, what's wrong with the ERA. I'm wondering if you could just take a few moments to outline what's wrong with David Rockefeller. <laughs> well, David Rockefeller, uh, really, uh, his greatest influence uh, was in the Democratic Party and being the sponsor of Jimmy Carter. Uh, the introduction was a bit, bit misleading. Uh, sometime I'll have to explain the difference between the gravediggers and the kingmakers. They are not the same people at all. Uh, my book, A Choice, Not an Echo, uh, was a history of the um, New York establishment control of Republican national conventions. Uh, we broke that in 1964. They haven't controlled it since then. Mm -hmm. If you'd like to go read some past history, my book is a choice, not an echo. Uh, the New York establishment does not control Republican conventions anymore. But uh, I felt they were undemocratic. They were thrusting candidates on the Republican Party that the Republicans did not want. And uh, we have broken that control. It wasn't David Rockefeller. Again, he was a sponsor of Jimmy Carter. Okay? Yeah, you said that... Um, the bomb is a marvelous gift given to this, our country by a wise God. And given the fact that you, I assume, you're pro-life in your position on abortion, mm -hmm. how can you reconcile the position of advocating this measure of uh, human annihilation when you claim to be pro-life? Well, I, <laughs> I think you have to look at the context of how we got the bomb. Uh, at the time we got the bomb, um, our enemies were working on it too, and I do feel that we should thank God every day that it came to us, and not to Nazi Germany, and not to Stalin's Russia, and not to Imperial Japan, because the whole face of the earth would have been different if they had gotten the bomb first. The bomb was the greatest uh, piece of, of uh, destructive weapon that the world had ever seen up to that time, and it was a demonstration of tremendous power. 
uh, I think in the years following uh, 1945, um, with that power in our hands, uh, we, we showed the most magnificent thing that's ever been shown in history, which is that we had enough power that it was not only more than any other country, it was more than every other country combined. We could have used it to take over anybody we wanted, and we used it only as an instrument of peace. And uh, we did not take over... Well, Hiroshima was the end of the war. They started it. <laughs> Hiroshima, Hiroshima. <laughs> Hiroshima was to end the war, and it ended rapidly. Uh, with, uh, the Japanese started the war, and certainly we had every right to end it as quickly as we could with the least cost of American lives. At that particular moment, my husband was among tens of thousands of GIs on the West Coast, ready to be shipped out to fight in Japan and conquer it island by island at a Pentagon's estimated cost of one million American casualties. The dropping of that bomb saved all those Americans. It also It didn't kill as many Japanese as were killed by conventional bombs nor did it kill anywhere near as many Japanese as if they had fought on. Mm. Mm. Hi, Ms. Schaff. My name is Sheila Pax. I want you to know who I am. Mm -hmm. And I've taken the name Pax after Rosa Pax, whom I greatly admire. Well, I took the name Schlafly because of my husband. <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because I went to court legally to get rid of my ex-husband's name, and that's when I legally took the name Pax. Um, With your, wait, what's your question? question? Yeah. See, I think you're a dangerous woman, and I, and I think that you're... Well, thank you. What's your question? And Ellen Goodman, just a minute, I'll get to it. Ellen Goodman likens you to Goebbels of the Nazi party. I think you're the, a victim of, of, I don't know what, it's very sad, but you are a part of the rise of fascism and the right wing in this country. Well, the people here are telling me to ask you a question. I frankly don't have a question that I could possibly think of asking. And well, for the benefit of the freshman law students, there's the old story about the advice the old lawyer gave the young lawyer. If you're strong on the... Uh, law, argue the law instead of the facts. If you're uh, strong on the facts, argue the facts. If you're weak on both, you abuse your opponent. And I think the personal attack is uh, what people resort to when they don't have any good arguments. Go on. What's your question? Um, Mrs. Schlafly, I've been a victim of harassment myself in school, and it's a matter of personal concern to me. The reason I'm bringing it up here is because of what you said earlier about harassment. Harvard's had some cases of harassment recently. There was one over the summer in which a woman was harassed and could not find out what had happened to her accuser, although if he had, say, slandered her or stolen a pencil, as much as a pencil only, she would have been able to find out what had been done to him. I'm just wondering, Harvard was bringing up a policy on sexual harassment after this, but it's been buried now in the um, usual business, I guess, of tenures that aren't given and so forth. Don't you feel that if there were some kind of national thing that could overcome these things in the universities as well as in the state legislature, that it would be very helpful to all of us? 
Was this a problem with the professor or a student? Yes, it was. Well, it was, was a professor, professor, and it was an associate professor, wasn't it? Well, a teacher, anyway. And a teacher. So there have been, of course. It was a teacher. It was a case of a teacher harassing a student. A teacher harassing a grad student. A grad student. Yes. A teacher harassing a grad student. And she couldn't find out what. Had well, I think that's out. shocking. What's the matter with all you activist women? Can't you get something done? Well, that was part of the point. Um, no, we're not blaming the victim. I think the victim ought to be protected. I think it's absolutely shocking if a teacher's harassing a female student. And I think you ought to do something about it. But if the laws so far aren't adequate to protect us, don't you think that we require some more protection under the law? Well, what law do you want? Uh, if there were a law... <laughs> uh, I, I mean, if, if, if you have a law that can deal with that, I, uh, I, I think I would support that. I, I, I'm not sure a law can deal with that, but I think you ought, certainly ought to have a university policy that, is a, uh, that would take measures against uh, instructors uh, taking sexual advantage of students. I think that's you don't terrible. Think the law is required to help universities like Harvard who don't really think it necessary to pass one? I mean, we have a policy, but it's gotten buried somewhere. I don't know where it is. Well, I, I certainly think you ought to have a policy, and it ought to be implemented. And if it can't, if, if you have a situation that Harvard uh, can't cope with, uh, maybe we can talk about a law and work out a law to deal with that. Yeah. Um, Mrs. Schlafman, you've talked a lot about the cost of the ERA, and I want to address the fact that perhaps we're willing to pay those costs in order to achieve the, the end result. And getting back to the draft, women under a constitution protected by the ER, amended by the ERA, would enjoy all the rights and freedoms that men do. Um, why should they not also bear the responsibility of defending those rights and freedoms? and also bear the responsibility of ensuring that diplomacy, not war, is used to, to settle the differences in this world. I think we would have much more of a stake in peace if we also had a stake in war. Now, you don't really think the ERA is going to prevent war, do you? No, it's not. There's uh, no that's way. That's not what I'm asking. There's no way that it could. Uh, you, you made a statement that under ERA, women would enjoy all the constitutional rights and privileges that men do, they do today. There is absolutely no constitutional right that any man in this room has say that you and I don't have. Right. I said right and freedom, not constitutional We have the freedom. What constitutional right do you think these men have that you don't have? Well, if you think ERA is going to solve the rape problem, we really do have a problem with Mr. what you Schlafen, think about that's ERA. That's my question. My question is, um, under a constitution amended by the ERA, women would have the same responsibility for defense of this country that men would. And I don't understand why that's a bad thing. I think that it would also give us much more of a stake in peace. <laughs> you don't think we have a stake in peace? I, the idea that the women don't have as much a stake in peace is just, is just, we have absolutely, there's not as much a stake in peace as, as men have a stake in peace. 
And this notion that you are willing to pay pay the cost, but but the other young women are not willing to be drafted. Why should you? You probably are. No. How many women in this room would go to war for peace? <laughs> Let's all march out for, for, for ultimate peace. How many? No. I, how many women in this room are for the draft? For women. <laughs> uh, I don't think you can sell it in any, in any event. Uh, at the present time, uh, we have a situation that Congress can vote it up or down. And um, the problem with ERA is that it absolutely enforces the compulsion of ERA on women who do not want it. Yeah. Um, before I say my own thing, the, the girl before me, I don't think her thing was clear. What she was saying is that the sentence on this teacher was not revealed, was not available, and that's what she wanted. And if, if he had stolen a pencil, they would have told him, well, there was a fine or he was sent to jail for a week. Well, all right, I'm sympathetic with what she said. I just yeah. don't... I don't think it was clear. That yeah, that was thank you for right. clearing that up. I'd like to say, first of all, though I may not admire, you know, what you say. I thought I was going to think you were a maniac. I respect you for... I don't think so now. I respect you for speaking here. This reminds me of, like, Ireland. It reminds me of Protestants versus Catholics where nobody really knows what they're fighting for. I think so. And uh, um, what was my question? <laughs> okay. Um, about the draft, mm -hmm. maybe. I'd like to. S the last girl, I think she's right. She said, the last uh, woman, the last person. All right. Let, let's try to keep the question short so more yeah, people can The last question, question, I think um, that they would have a stake in peace as much as I think that I am more oppose more against the draft than most girls my age or women my age because it's affecting me personally and I, and I don't think well I good well vote for Ronald Reagan and he'll keep the volunteer military okay Miss <laughs> um, Schlafly I'd like to uh, ask you one thing well first I'd like to say I think you're the greatest thing this country's ever had I would also like to add that being only a woman, I get confused sometimes. And what I'd like to ask you is, um, since you're here tonight, who's taking care of your family at home? You know, that's the nicest compliment I've had today, that you think I'm young enough to have children who do need my daily care. Uh, we have um, one son who's a, an engineer and a lawyer, a second son who's an engineer and a physician, the third son who is an engineer and a mathematician, the, the daughter who is an economist and a lawyer, the next son is an engineer, and the last daughter is in college, and I, they hardly need my day-to-day -day care anymore. But your husband, his shirts aren't being washed? Yes, well... <laughs> he, he let me come as a Harvard Law School graduate for old time's sake. Let's go on. Uh, yeah, you said that you were in favor of the laws which allow um, women to have equal rights in employment, and you mm -hmm. said that you were for laws against sex harassment. That law is the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I was wondering what your position in 1964 was on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I supported the Civil Rights Act in 1964. I support Title VII and Title IX. And I would point out to you that the feminist movement had nothing to do with those laws. 
that was before they got organized, and it was the uh, those uh, uh, male-dominated Congress that put sex in the civil rights law. But you supported get Barry Goldwater, nevertheless. I did, yes. Hmm. Everybody, everybody. Well, I don't know anybody agree with a hundred percent. Okay. Okay. Mrs. Shafley, I've never heard you speak before, and all evening I've heard you say what you're against. And I was wondering if you could tell me what role you're advocating for women in modern society and what issues you are for. Good question. Well, you see, the topic was the Equal Rights Amendment. And so um, with the Constitutional Amendment, uh, you're either for it or against it. There kind of isn't a middle ground on that. Uh, what I'm for in regard to women's role, uh, every woman can make her choice the way she wants to make it in her own way. I think America is the great land of opportunity. Young women today have a tremendous array of choices. You can do whatever you want to with your life. You can go into any type of career. You can get married, raise a family. You can do both at uh, the same time or different times in your life. You can make your life any way you want. Uh, I do object to the feminist movement where it tries to take away rights from some of the women who do not agree with them, such as take away the rights of my 19-year-old daughter who does not want to register from the draft, or take away the rights of homemakers who do feel that they are entitled to the traditional rights of homemakers. But you have your full choice, and I encourage you to pursue whatever career you want. I uh, believe in education for women. I believed in it so much that I went to work on my 18th birthday on the night shift in a grimy man's job firing machine guns and rifles so that I could work my way through college in the morning. And uh, after I finished uh, my bachelor's, I had enough money saved up, but with a small additional scholarship, I was able to have a perfectly wonderful year here in Cambridge. And um, then I um, was in the working world for a few years, and I got married, and I raised six children, and and uh, now I can come around and talk to you. And I went back to law school after I was 50, so you can go to law school anytime. And uh, I think that I've had a very exciting life, and all those options are out there for you. You can do whatever you want. Now, the exciting thing about our Stop ERA movement is that we proved that we can make the process of self-government operate. And with a small group of women, most of whom were housewives when we started, we were able to outmaneuver the president, all the governors, 99% of the media, and win a, a constitutional battle of immense dimension. And I think um, that's a great inspiration for what you can do in making this wonderful process of self-government function. What exactly is self-government? What exactly do you mean by self-government? By self-government, I mean the process by which the American people elect their representatives, the great constitutional system that our founding fathers gave us. It's given us more freedom and independence than any country in the history of the world. And it's self-government that makes it function. Um, Hello, Miss. Let me just say, we're running out of time, so we will limit the questions to who's now at the microphone. Thank you. Um, good evening, Miss Shafley. I must say that Although I disagree with you in terms of your opposition to ERA, um, I respect your opinions and your well-reasoned views. Uh, and I must also say that it's, a, it's pleasant to experience this and the, um, the con as opposed to the last one I attended with Weinberger in the forum, as I'm sure the forum members remember so well. But my question is simply this. Um, some of the things you mentioned were um, 
issues that, you know, students and Americans should think about seriously in terms of the, the possible enactment of ERA. Um, to corner phrase from one member, um, a parade of horribles, um, from gay rights agenda enactment to um, a draft for women, et cetera, and so forth. Um, I guess my question is this as a student of history and also have, and being in law school as well. Um, could you for a moment say a given state assembly in like 1865 and the, um, the assemblymen are debating whether or not the 13th Amendment should be enacted? And I can just see um, you know, several assemblymen, you know, having a parade of horribles in that context. Um, if, you make these, if, you, if you free these blacks, I mean, one, we lose our property. Two, we lose our standing in society. Three, they may, in a sense, get out of their place and want to be equal to us, white males at this time, um, et cetera, and so forth. And so I guess what I'm saying is that there's always going to be a perceivable and arguable parade of horrors for any given constitutional amendment. But I think the key thing is to get something on the books so that, as the courts interpret something, it's subjected to changing values over time. For example, the 13th and 15th Amendment and 14th have been subjected to changing interpretations, and I'm sure that the ERA were enacted. It also would be interpreted in a way that would reflect the values of the, the judges and the citizens at the point, and if you would comment on that. Yes, well, first of all, if... if Because I'm, I'm kind of glad they did enact the 13th Amendment personally. <laughs> well, well, you, you might disagree. Yeah, well, 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 if you're asking if I support the 13th, the 14th, and 15th yeah. Amendments, yes, I do support them. Uh, and and uh, I, I think the American people wanted the 13th and 14th and 15th Amendments to do what they have done for the blacks. Now, they've done a lot of other things that uh, were never intended by those who wrote it. Uh, which is the result of judicial activism. But the basic part of your question is, uh, do we want to just get ERA on the books and trust to the courts to uh, uh, handle it or along with whatever values they have? Or perhaps interpret it in line with given values and attitudes in society. Well, but the question is, what are? Do you want them interpreted according to my values, or do you want them interpreted according to Professor Law's values? Well, I would think that the values and attitudes of society would be reflected through the... Well, what are the values and attitudes of society? I can't say, and I don't think you can either, but I do think But that you want to trust those nine old men? Is that your point? You want to trust them? <laughs> I won't say any more. You know, I, the argument isn't going to sell because the, I mean, everybody knows that the courts have read all kinds of things into the Constitution that nobody believed uh, was there when the amendments were passed. Uh, and there may be a whole lot of other things in, in regard to ERA that I haven't even thought up that they could think up if they're a judicially activist court. But we know that there is a significant body of people in this country who want these particular specific results. And, there, and those of us who oppose to ERA do not want those results. That's democracy. It's democracy, <laughs> and we won, and you should accept it. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Lafley, mm -hmm. um, I'm aware of your official standpoint on ERA. And Good. I I'm glad I got that across. Yes. I've, I was more curious, though, as to your personal feelings. Now, setting aside the, uh, the parade of horrors that you set up, which actually pro possibly could occur, if you could be assured that they wouldn't happen, would you be in favor of the things that ERA stands for, bereft of any bad side effects? Uh, that's, that's a good question. 
Uh, I proposed in my testimony to the House Judiciary Committee, I think about 15 amendments. In the time we had here, I didn't even discuss them all, but there are another half a dozen amendments. If they passed all my amendments to prevent it from doing these horribles, I wouldn't spend any time opposing it because I wouldn't be worried about it. However, at that point, you have to ask, what good is it going to do? I don't believe I have too much respect for the Constitution just to amend it uh, just because we want to have some more words there. Uh, so you have to ask, what is it going to do? Now, probably the core of it, uh, the meaning of it would be an absolute mandate uh, to enforce sex equality in every law, federal and state, everything that's touched by government funding. I think that's a fair statement. Or as every president of the American Bar Association has testified, to give us the same strict rule in regard to sex uh, that we have uh, in regard to race. I do not accept that. There are some areas where we want equality. Uh, we want equality in jobs and job opportunity. We have it by federal law. Uh, we want equality in, in opportunity and education. Women can be uh, uh, doctors or lawyers or whatever, but there are a lot of areas where equality would be very hurtful. The military is one area. Uh, insurance is another area. We do not want equality because equality is hurtful to women. So uh, I would not accept it. However, for beyond the question of whether I would accept it is the question of what, what is going to happen. Now, I don't know. If you, had, if you gave Congress the opportunity to vote on these amendments, it is very possible that they could muster uh, enough votes uh, for an ERA amended with one or two or three of these amendments. I don't know the answer to that question. That's the constitutional process. But Tip O'Neill won't allow that to happen because it is the, the view of the ERA leaders that they will not accept any. And the pattern is such that I think it's pretty clear that the reason, the main things they want to accomplish by ERA are abortion funding and gay rights. And I say this because of our experience in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Now, those were states where they tried to put through a state ERA, and amendment was offered to say, except that it doesn't have anything to do with abortion or homosexuals. And at that point, the ERA advocates pulled the bill. They didn't want it. And uh, so I think we've reached a stalemate on the issue. Yeah? Um, I was wondering, it seems that the draft in military equality is one of your main bones against the ERA. And as a mother of several sons and a daughter, if there were a war, wouldn't you feel a bit queasy if your sons went off to die and your, if, and your daughter stayed behind? Do you love your daughter more than your sons? And if you, if you, really, if you want to protect your sons and you're not for the draft and you hope that there isn't a war, what action are you now taking to promote world peace? Well, as a mother of uh, six children, all of whom have been draft age, I do certainly feel very differently about uh, sons uh, being drafted and daughters being drafted. Uh, the daughters would not have an equal opportunity to survive. And another thing a lot of people do not understand is that the only sole purpose you know, a lot of people have this idea that you can draft people and then you can uh, make them secretaries or put them in the kitchen or some easy, soft, safe job. The sole reason for a draft is the combat infantry. That is the sole reason for a draft. 
And when you have a draft, then you have all these people who want to volunteer for all these exciting jobs uh, so they won't be in the combat infantry. And um, there is no way that um, uh, the, the women would have an equal opportunity to survive against enemy armies that are almost exclusively male. I think we should look to the experience of the two nations that have used women like that in modern times, namely the Soviet Union and Israel. The Soviet Union used women in World War II. They gave it up. The Soviet Army today is 99.5% male. Israel used women in combat in 1967. Israel gave it up. We'll never use it, do it again. Israel treats its women who are drafted very much like we treated women in our wax during World War II. Very, very different. And I think we should learn from the experience of others that it simply doesn't work. I think it's unfair to everybody. I think it's unfair to the young women. I think it's unfair to the young men. I think it's unfair to society. And furthermore, it's unacceptable in the democratic process. You could not possibly get Congress to vote it, but the ERAers are trying to bring it in uh, surreptitiously uh, through uh, the uh, constitutional issue. Uh, I think our chairman is going to want to close off. I'd like to thank you for your interesting questions and, and for this forum here tonight. Uh, it, is, it is really remarkable how over this 12-year period, only a handful of law schools have uh, displayed any interest in the discussion of this constitutional issue. Uh, the dearth of uh, material uh, is, is just really, really remarkable in, in scholarly journals or in journals uh, that reach the general public. And uh, the effort of the ERAers to treat this subject uh, with ridicule and with personal smears has been uh, just most of what they've had to say on the subject. So I would like to thank you for your willingness to listen and to discuss this on what I hope was a worthwhile level. Thank you.